Trex and Sci-Fi Podcast number 217 for March 8th, 2009. The following has been declassified by the Banzai Institute for Biomedical Engineering and Strategic Information. We must also acknowledge the extraordinary cooperation of those countless members of Team Banzai in Texas and in New Jersey, without whose great support we could not have proceeded. From the Banzai Institute for Biomedical Engineering and Strategic Information in New Jersey, this is Blue Blazer Irregular Phil Donaldson, otherwise known as Darmok on the Treks in Sci-Fi forums. This week on Treks in Sci-Fi, we have a special treat for you. The science fiction comedy cult classic, Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, starring Peter Weller. Hey, that's a mouthful, huh? I don't know that I uh, consider myself uh, a member of a cult or anything. Anyway, I'm your guest host, Phil Donaldson, as I said before, and we're going to have some fun. Strap yourselves in. Buckaroo, President's on line one, calling about is everything okay with the alien space cloud from Planet 10, or should he just go ahead and destroy Russia? Tell him yes on one and no on two. Which was yes, destroy Russia, or uh, number two? Welcome to this week's installment of Treks in Sci-Fi, your source of geeky goodness. We're coming to you from the Garden State of New Jersey this week. Mmm, smell that smell. New Jersey. And I'm here at the Banzai Institute, where they've been gracious enough to allow me to share with you some of the declassified material as depicted in the biographical document Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. But before we get into the movie... I really want to um, thank Rico for allowing me to guest host this week. Uh, that's very generous of him. And uh, Rico, I hope you're uh, getting a, a good week of rest and uh, resting up your voice for when you have to get behind the microphone again. Anyway, let's get moving on to the subject at hand. Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Uh, I, I should add that this week we're not going to be uh, covering any sci-fi news. So next week you can find out what's happening with Star Trek 90210 uh, on next week's podcast. This next audio clip is from the trailer that I remember seeing uh, just before the release of Buckaroo Banzai. It uh, really took me aback because it was very unusual. Uh, it was funny, uh, but definitely very left of center. And I tend to uh, be drawn to things that are very left of center and very abstract. Let's listen to this clip so you can get an idea of what I experienced when uh, I was in the theater. Evil! Pure and simple from the eighth dimension! I'm not ready for this. So what? Big deal. Salutations, great buckaroo banzai. A common green danger confronts both our worlds. These are Martian names. John Webb, John Fat-Eating, John Icicle Boy. Martians. In New Jersey. 
fucker. The president's on line one, calling about is everything okay with the alien spacecraft from planet 10, or should he just go ahead and destroy Russia? Tell him yes on one and no on two. Which was yes, destroy Russia or uh, number two? I'm not worth it, fucker. Forget about me. They'll never break me. Honey, get off the phone. We're giving you a chance to save your planet. I'm on a magnificent circuit now! And now to share with us a little bit about the music from Buckaroo Banzai, our good friend Vartok. This is Bartok again with another music and sci-fi segment. For today's segment, I'm going to talk about Michael Lehman Boddicker, a composer-musician known for composing the music in the sci-fi cult film The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Now, I have to admit that I was not at all familiar with Mike Boddicker, and it was only through Darmok's request that I even considered looking into this composer. And in spite of his musical talent and accomplishments, Mike has managed to keep an extremely low profile, with very little information available on the web. Normally, I have found that most composers and musicians have their own websites, Facebooks, and other connections such as interviews and such, in order to help provide a market to their capabilities. Not so with Mike. Now, it probably made you pause when you heard me open this segment with Michael Jackson's Thriller, but this 1982 classic rock music clearly showcases Mike Boddicker's synthesizer skills as a session musician. Mike Boddicker was born on January 19, 1952, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which makes him 56 years old today. If you had to summarize Mike in a single line, it would be, he is an American film composer and session musician, specializing in electronic music. Mike graduated from Coe College, that's spelled C-O-E, in 1975 and received an honorary doctorate degree 29 years later from Coe in 2004. Mike's top musical award during his career would have to be his shared Grammy for Best Album of Original Score Written for a Motion Picture or Television Special for his collaboration on the 1983 movie Flashdance, heard here playing in the background. Boddicker is a studio owner, having established Soul 7 Recording in Sherman Oaks, California as a private music composition room. Mike has also worked with Barry Manilow, Celine Dion, and Chicago, 
and has composed or played on numerous film scores. One year later, in 1984, Mike was the composer and musician in the cult buckaroo bonsai sci-fi film. Here you are hearing him playing the track he composed called Motorcycle Chase, where buckaroo is trying to chase down a band driven by electroids. The film's music coordinator and sound designer, Bones Howe, worked with Mike Boddicker, who wrote the score and created many of the sound effects. Mike even created this special version of Since I Don't Have You that Buckaroo sings to Penny Pretty. As it turns out, Peter Weller, who plays Buckaroo Banzai, is an accomplished musician. In the club scene, it is actually Peter who plays electric guitar, trumpet, and sings. Most unfortunately for the music-loving world, the soundtrack to Buckaroo Banzai has never been officially released. Fortunately, the sci-fi music of Buckaroo and the Hong Kong Cavaliers has been issued on at least five and possibly six bootleg CDs over the years. The fifth and most ambitious bootleg CD is titled The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Special Edition Compilation Soundtrack and includes 46 dialogue tracks, five video files, scans of the postcard set, press kit photos and extras, and the original movie script. In 1985, Mike Boddicker composed the music for one of Vartok's favorite sci-fi movies called Enemy Mine, starring Dennis Quaid as Earth soldier Willis Davidge and Louis Gossett Jr. as the Drac, Jeraba, or Jerry, Shigan, a reptilian appearing alien. In this late 21st century movie, the two foes both crash land on an alien world after sustaining battle damage. At first, they are out to kill each other, but as in many war movies, they find out that they are capable of befriending each other as they work together to survive on a world with dangerous animal life and meteorite bombardments. As the movie progresses, Jerry has a baby drac named Sammy's, and the human Willis eventually comes to love and take care of it as a substitute father. And now for the poser later in this podcast. In the end credits to The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, Buckaroo, his band members, and many of the cast members are seen walking, almost marching, and step to the beat of the music in a dry Los Angeles aqueduct. 
what was special about the music that they were walking to. Stay tuned, and I'll be back with the answer later in this podcast. Thank you, Vartok. Uh, you put in a lot of hard work. It wasn't uh, an easy task, and I thank you for being so intrepid and, dare I say, enterprising. Anyway, you'll be able to hear the answer to Vartok's quiz near the end of the podcast. Anyway, uh, this movie, I just really loved this movie. It was, um, it had an unusual uh, kind of feel to it. And as I said before, it was very kind of left, uh, left of center. Um, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that uh, W.D. Richter was primarily a, a screenwriter. He wrote uh, the 1979 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He was one of the writers on Big Trouble in Little China. Now, this movie was released on August 15th, 1984, and like I said, was uh, written and produced by W.D. Richter. And it's about the multi-talented Dr. Buckaroo Banzai, who is a physicist, a neurosurgeon, a rock star, samurai, jet car driver, and a comic book hero. And uh, basically, he was, you know, kind of like a Da Vinci-type character. The movie takes place in a span of roughly 50 years, and it begins in the middle of the story pretty much. And there's an implication that it's part of a series. W.D. Richter and uh, Earl Mac Rausch, uh, who was the writer for the movie, he also wrote uh, New York, New York, and uh, the screenplay for Wired, which was a movie about John Belushi. They met at Dartmouth College. They worked for the alumni magazine. And Rausch's original 30-page treatment was called Find the Jet Car, said the president, a Buckaroo Banzai thriller. And uh, at one point, there was a revision where uh, they had changed his name to Bandy. So his name at one point was Buckaroo Bandy, and then they changed it back to uh, Banzai. And then uh, um, an early draft was titled, another draft was The Strange Case of Mr. Cigars, which was about a huge robot and a box of Hitler's cigars. And then uh, Earl Mac Roush had to postpone his work for a few years uh, while he wrote uh, New York, New York for Martin Scorsese and did some other uh, screenplays that uh, were not produced. Then in 1980, W.D. Richter talked with uh, producers Frank Marshall and Neil Canton about filming uh, one of his screenplays. And then at some point in this meeting, uh, Canton and Richter decided to form their own production company and decided that Buckaroo Banzai was going to be their first film. And then at that point, Earl Mac Roush wrote a 60-page treatment, which was called Lepers from Saturn. The uh, Electroids were uh, called uh, Lepers at this point, and then they were eventually called Lizards, and then eventually called Electroids. Um, and so um, they shopped it around to some uh, to some production people, and no one wanted to touch it. It was too unusual. Uh, they, they, they were dealing with two first-time producers and a first-time director. Then they contacted uh, someone at MGM United Artists who Canton had worked with before, and he liked it, then introduced him them to somebody else, and yada yada yada, and then eventually they had a development deal with the studio, and then it took another year and a half for Earl Mac Roush to write the final screenplay. Then um, there was a Writers Guild strike, and 
the uh, the film sat in development for a little over a year, and then uh, one of the producers had left uh, MGM uh, because his uh, his projects just weren't doing well at the box office. So then uh, this put Buckaroo Banzai in jeopardy, and then um, then this guy David Begelman. Uh, formed Sherwood Productions and uh, exercised a buyout option with MGM for uh, for Buckaroo Banzai, the script, and then he took it to 20th Century Fox, who agreed to make it. And uh, Earl MacRoush ended up writing three more drafts before uh, before they actually had a, a shooting script. Now this film, to me, is kind of like Woody Allen meets The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And some of the taglines from the film are. Beings from another dimension have invaded your world. You can't see them, but they can see you. Your only hope is Buckaroo Banzai. Expect the unexpected. He does. And it got a 71% at the uh, the tomato meter. You can uh, go to www.rottentomatoes.com and, uh, and see uh, ratings for a lot of uh, different movies. Now, there are a team of publicists that were hired to promote this film at Star Trek conventions uh, with a few clips and some uh, free Buckaroo Banzai headbands, which now are actually uh, very, very highly sought after by uh, uh, collectors, fans of the film. And uh, the studio really didn't work too hard to uh, to sell the film to uh, to a mainstream audience, so they didn't really put it, uh, any money into uh, traditional promotion. Uh, one of the um, publicists at the studio said, uh, and I quote, "Nobody knew what to do with Buckaroo Banzai. There was no simple way to tell anyone what it was about. I'm not sure anyone knew." And anyway, it was originally scheduled to be released on June 8, 1984, but then it was pushed back to August 15th, and it opened against the likes of Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, as well as Ghostbusters. It originally made uh, $620,000 in its opening weekend and ultimately grossed $6.2 million uh, in North America. Let's move on to the cast now because this is a really, really amazing uh, part of the movie. Uh, the for the role of Buckaroo Banzai, the studio wanted a recognizable and bankable movie star, but Richter wanted to cast a relative unknown. So he approached Weller, but Peter Weller was hesitant at first. He didn't really have a a sense of the movie, and Richter told him Banzai's story and uh, convinced him to do the film. And uh, Weller says that he based the character on Elia Kazan, Jacques Cousteau, Albert Einstein, Leonardo da Vinci, and Adam Ant. Now, he's been in more than 50 films and television series, and uh, he uh, has been in blockbusters like, you know, Robocop and Robocop 2. Of course, uh, you know him uh, as uh, the Terran supremacist John Frederick Paxton in the uh, Star Trek uh, Enterprise two-parter Demons and and Terra Prime. Uh, He's, in a way, his own kind of... uh, renaissance man because he's directed different projects uh, for television including Homicide Life on the Streets, Monk, Um, he was also in Odyssey 5, uh, the sci-fi show Odyssey 5, it was short-lived 
but he directed a few episodes of, of that, and um, he's also uh, done some stuff for the History Channel, credited as Peter Weller, Syracuse University, where he's an adjunct faculty uh, member. He's also a graduate student in art history at UCLA, focusing on the Italian Renaissance, and he also hosts uh, uh, the series Engineering at Empire for, uh, for the uh, History Channel as well. And in 2006, um, he joined 24. He's, this guy's been all over the place. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I thought when I originally saw him in the role, I thought eh, he seemed a little sardonic. But then um, I, I kind of thought, you know, yeah, he, he does seem a little dry. And I thought maybe he would have been maybe a little more flashy, a little more flamboyant. But um, I kind of likened him to, um, to to like Bob Newhart, where he uh, he was pretty much kind of like uh, the straight man, and everybody around him um, was a little more colorful. So that's that's kind of the the take I took on that. I I I loved the movie, and uh, you know, and uh, it was great uh, seeing Peter Weller in in, in that role. Although um, you know, I think um, I think he really did uh, a really wonderful job as as RoboCop. Now on to John Lithgow. The studio uh, really wanted to cast an unknown actor, which is interesting, but Earl MacRoush, he had actually written the role with John Lithgow in mind. And um, uh, John Lithgow wasn't really sure about the, about the character, uh, but was told that, uh, you know, it's kind of a Jekyll and Hyde uh, type of character. And uh, he basically affected uh, uh, an Italian accent and he spent time with an Italian tailor at MGM and recorded his voice he even had a uh, he even had a dialogue coach as well who uh, who helped him um, and then he changed his walk to that of, a, that of an old crab because his uh, alien metabolism was supposed to be messed up he uh, pretty much uh, said that uh, playing Lizardo was like playing the madman in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari now you've got to check out this this uh, this cast roster because it, it reads like a who's who of 80s character actors I mean you had uh, Peter Weller John Lithgow Ellen Barkin, Jeff Goldblum, Christopher Lloyd, Lewis Smith, who played Perfect Tommy, Rosalind Cash, Robert Ito, Pepe Senna, Ronald Lacey, Matt Clark, and Matt Clark, you know, from uh, TV all over the place in the 60s and 70s, as well as uh, the bartender in uh, Back to the Future 3. Um, you had uh, Clancy Brown, who played Rawhide. Carl uh, Lumley, Vincent Schiavelli, Dan Hadaya, John Ashton, James Keen, Yakov Smirnov. That it's just, just everywhere you look, there was there was a there was an, a, a character actor in this movie. And now onto the story. In the original theatrical release, what you're about to hear was not a part of that. Um, Doctor Bonsai was not happy with uh, the way it turned out. Anyway, um, what's what's good about it though is that it's a good bookend to the movie because it kind of um, it kind of speaks to the end of the movie, which we'll get to a little later. The following unedited footage has been declassified by the Banzai Institute for Biomedical Engineering and Strategic Information. 
At the age of five and already a highly unusual person, Buckaroo Banzai makes a movie of his own tiny feet. <laughs> Location is the American Southwest in the year 1954. Young Buckaroo finds himself in the company of an eccentric group of particle physicists headed by maverick professor Toichi Akita, seen here taking the camera from the precocious child and scooting him over to his parents. Uh, Dr. Masada Banzai, preeminent Japanese quantum theorist, and Dr. Sandra Banzai, Texas-born pioneer in negative mass propulsion. Enamored of the great American West, it is Dr. Banzai who insists that his son bear the unlikely given name of Buckaroo, a tribute to his adopted homeland. Thus, the boy celebrates his fifth birthday at a most deceptively peaceful time as the advent of Soviet nuclear capability ushers in a dangerous new phase of the Cold War, Buckaroo seems content to enjoy what all children must require, a pair of loving parents. Electromagnetic particle acceleration. In 1954, a highly unpredictable phenomenon. Professor Akita, encouraged by President Eisenhower, assembles a team of crack scientists at the Texas School of Mines. Their daring objective to prove that man can indeed pass unharmed through solid matter. Dr. Banzai is joined in the cockpit of his highly theoretical and virtually homemade gravity catapult by the fastest man on Earth, British race car driver George Campbell. But it is not speed alone that will do the job today. This is the secret ingredient, a radically redesigned Oscillation overthruster. Buckaroo, understanding little of what his parents are doing, becomes an eyewitness to history. A sudden precipitous rise in cabin pressure signals the beginning of the end. The origins of this mysterious malfunction are later traced to a crude incendiary device planted under Dr. Banzai's seat by none other than the infamous Hanoi Shan. Now, even though this was for the DVD release, I think you'll agree this really helps to set up the movie really nice. It tells a really nice backstory. And to note, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis played Sandra Bonsai, Dr. Bonsai's mother. Uh, she had been hanging around the set and wanted to be a part of it, asked uh, W.D. Richter uh, you know, how she could... Uh, possibly play a part in the film, and uh, he gave her that role. Now, the theatrical release started with preparations for the test run of the jet car. However, Buckaroo Banzai is missing, and that's because he's fulfilling his role as a neurosurgeon, his other job. It's kind of like uh, uh, the, the Heyman skit on uh, In Living Color. You know, Heyman, you only got the one job, man. I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a this, da, 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 da. Well, anyway, but Dr. Banzai uh, is uh, performing surgery with uh, Dr. Sidney Zwiebel, who is played by Jeff Goldblum. May I have the curved diacetyl, please? It's not here, Dr. Banzai. Uh, let me have the straight one, then. See, this is the point where, for me, it started to look like a problem. I mean, you know, I wanted to sacrifice the precentral vein in order to get some exposure. 
But because of this guy's normal variation, I got excited, and all of a sudden I didn't know whether I was looking at the precentral vein or one of the internal cerebral veins or the vein of Galen or the basilar vein of Rosenthal. So on my own, me, at this point, I was ready to say, that's it, let's get out. See, you can check your anatomy all you want. And even though there may be normal variation, when you get right down to it this far inside the head, it all looks the same. No, 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 don't tug on that. You never know what it might be attached to. This is controlling A2 vents uh, closed. Looks good. Dr. Banzai is using a laser to vaporize a pineal tumor without damaging the quadrigeminal plate. Subcutaneous microphones going to allow the patient to transmit verbal instructions to his own brain. Like Dr. raise Bonsai's my left arm or throw the harpoon. People are going to come from all over. This boy is an Eskimo. You ever thought about joining me full time? What do you mean? You serious? Do you have an opening? Uh-huh. Can you sing? A little. Yeah, I can dance. Eventually, Buckaroo Banzai shows up at the scene and proceeds to test the jet car. And he goes on the straightaway and you think he's testing it for speed, then he veers off and everybody's all freaked out and surprised. He uh, ends up heading for a mountain, and he goes inside the mountain and just seems to disappear in in thin air. And you see him uh, in another dimension. Something hits the car, he comes out on the other side. There's some kind of brain-like material that's stuck to the underside of the car. Anyway... The, uh, the test is a, is a success. Uh, he's gone through solid matter through the use of something called the, the oscillation overthruster. Now, in that scene also, um, in addition to seeing the picture of uh, Jamie Lee Curtis as Dr. Banzai's mother, uh, there's, uh, there's a reference to a Stevie Wonder song, and you'll have to watch the movie to see what it is. But it, it's really interesting. And that's what I like about the movie there. It, it's really, it's, because it's, it's directed by a writer, uh, there's a lot of stuff in the background that you either hear or see, and you don't maybe uh, consciously catch it the first time, but you know, the more you watch the movie, the more, more things you catch. And there's something about the oscillation overthruster instrumentality that uh, bears a, a, a somewhat of an interesting resemblance to the flux capacitor in uh, Back to the Future, at, at least to me. So anyway, Buckaroo Banzai makes history, the news carries it, and Dr. Emilio Lizardo, uh, who's played by John Lithgow, sees this on, on television. He's in, a, uh, he's in an insane asylum, um, and you see him after he, uh, after he views this news item, he's putting alligator clips on his ears and some kind of uh, conductive clip on his tongue and he seems to electrocute himself but next thing you know he's going back uh, into a flashback scene uh, back to 1938 where he and uh, Dr. Akita are testing uh, a primitive version of the oscillation overthruster which uh, allows uh, allows a uh, uh, um, allows you to pass through solid matter but for some reason Lizardo prematurely uh, starts the car that starts the vehicle that he's in and uh, doesn't quite make it all the way through uh, the other side of the wall. And so he, uh, his head is stuck in the eighth dimension, and you see all these, uh, all these aliens kind of um, coming at him. And then he comes out, and uh, he's just 
wild and he's different and he goes nuts and then uh then the flashback comes back to uh comes back to present day in the next scene the hong kong cavaliers are seen playing in a new jersey nightclub buckaroo banzai is soloing on his guitar and on this cornet or some kind of small horn and then everything stops excuse me excuse me uh is someone out there not having a good time? Is somebody crying out there in the darkness? Somebody crying. I'm sorry. Um, can we get can we get her a mic and a spotlight? Uh, Tommy, can we run her uh, mic and wave the number of mic? Are you serious? Yeah, run her mic. What's your name? Who cares? Right. Well, I care. What's your name? Right. Penny. Did you say Peggy? So as it turns out, Buckaroo Banzai is singing this sad song to this sad woman, and um, she takes a uh, takes a gun, puts it to her head. A bartender bumps into her. Uh, she uh, shoots the gun off in the air, and everybody on in the Hong Kong Cavaliers is pulling out a gun. They card her off, and then uh, in the next scene, uh, oh man, I tell you, this movie. Uh, the first half of this movie is a lot of character development and a lot of setup. Um, we see Dr. Lizardo uh, escaping from uh, the insane asylum while uh, killing an attendant and running off. And then um, uh, the Hong Kong Cavaliers uh, hear about, uh, about him um, escaping. In the next scene, Buckaroo Banzai, who's dressed in a samurai outfit, just finishing some kind of uh, ritual, gets a message from... Uh, Rawhide that uh, Dr. Hikita's old uh, partner, Dr. Emilio Lizardo, escaped from the uh, insane asylum. And then uh, we see Buckaroo Banzai going to meet up with uh, Dr. Sidney Zwiebel, who's dressed in a cockamamie cowboy outfit in front of a jail. Buckaroo Banzai goes and uh, speaks with Penny Pretty, and it turns out that she bears a striking resemblance to Buckaroo Banzai's deceased wife. And it uh, turns out uh, that Penny Pretty was uh, her twin, which is why Buckaroo kept calling her Peggy in the club. Then we move on to the 
news conference where at first we uh, we see some uh, shady characters in the audience uh, played by Christopher Lloyd and uh, Vincent Schiavelli and um, Dan Hedaya. This is the um, news conference where Buckaroo Banzai explains what happened at the mountain. I'd like to uh, move this thing uh, along. Perhaps some of you noticed we have a motorcycle convention rolling in here. We're a little short of time. Besides, I don't imagine you came here to listen to me talk. You're right. (laughs) Without further ado, I'd uh, like to introduce a young man who yesterday took our notions of reality and turned them inside out. Dr. Uh, Buckaroo Banzai. Perhaps you can explain yourself. Secretary, Senator Cunningham, members of the world press. 30 years ago, almost to this day, my mother and father, Dr. Sandra and Masato Banzai, gave their lives for what was then considered to be a very insane notion. The possibility of contacting alien life However, not on another planet, but here, maybe right inside this table, living on a simultaneous plane of existence with our own. Perhaps within our mountain. See this rock? It's solid matter, right? But in point of fact, the solid parts of this rock, the neutrons, quarks, protons, and electrons, comprise only about one quadrillionth of its total volume. How many zeros is there? Quite a few. The rest of this rock is actually only empty space. So back in 1937, Professor Akita here and Dr. Emilio Lazardo figured that if solid matter were mostly just empty space, a person should be able to discover a way to travel inside things. We at the Banzai Institute have at last found that way. We have created a device called an oscillation overthruster which systematically uh, reorders matter by uh, annihilating electrons, positrons. Oh, I get it. What you're saying is that oppositely charged particles collide and blow each other up in a burst of energy, like a tiny big bang, like a, 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 a baby bang. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm probably just uh, stating the very obvious. Shut up, Penny. No, 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 it's not obvious at all. If it was obvious, everybody would be doing it every day. See, by all accounts, it appears as though I literally went right through a mountain. But you could take that mountain and pulverize it and sift through it like breadcrumbs for the rest of your natural life. And you would never, ever find this. And yet this living organism came out of that mountain in Texas with me, even though I was never inside that mountain. The president's calling you, Buckaroo. President of what? The president of the United States. Oh. So Buckaroo Banzai goes to a payphone where he thinks he's going to be speaking to the president, but then he gets zapped with a jolt of electricity through the phone sent by dark-skinned aliens with Jamaican accents in the ship orbiting Earth. Dr. Banzai then runs back to the conference room where he sees uh, red electrodes. He points them out and uh, starts chasing after them, those three shady guys who, uh, who, we, who we saw as human beings before. Somehow Buckaroo can see them as aliens. One of the aliens grabs
grabs Dr. Hikita at gunpoint and uh, takes him. They take him to a van. Buckaroo then chases after the van on a motorcycle. Uh, they go out into the mountains somewhere. He loses the van, calls back to HQ for help, and tells Rawhide, who is uh, played by... Um, Clancy Brown to investigate yo-yo dime propulsion systems. The call then goes out to all Blue Blazer Irregulars, part of the Team Bonsai Network. A young African-American kid, Scooter Lindley, responds and gets his father. Then out in the woods, an alien shuttle pod sent from the mothership in space crash lands and it's found by a couple of hunters. One alien, a, a black guy with dreadlocks, emerges. He falls and dies. Another Rasta escapes undetected, carrying what looks to be a birthday cake box. Then Buckaroo finds Akita. Turns out the Jolt gave him knowledge of some kind of a, a formula. So he sends Akita back to HQ to synthesize the formula, which he believes to be some kind of antidote. The red electroids in human appearance then arrive at the crash scene. The leader, who's played by Christopher Lloyd, identifies himself as John Big Boutet from Yo-Yo Dime Propulsion Systems. I, I love that name, Big Boutet. Then Buckaroo is discovered and chased by the aliens. He's rescued in a helicopter containing Scooter and Casper Lindley. Then the Rasta uh, delivers the box to Team Bonsai back at the compound. Inside, Rawhide and the gang are hacking into the Yo-Yo Dine computer. This is clear, look. Watch out, what do you got? All these people applied for social security cards in the same town in New Jersey on the exact same date. New Jersey? 46 Yo-Yo Dine employees, Grover's Mills, New Jersey, 11-1-38. I got some pictures, boys. Looks like a practical joke. Check out these names. John Yaya, John Parrot, John Big Booty, maybe not John Nolan, John O'Connor. No way, Jose. John Smallberries? It's a joke. Maybe that's what uh, Buckaroo was talking about when he said... No, 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 Reno, there are no ages and no places of birth. Uh, Grover's Mill. Grover's Mill, 1938. Why is that so familiar? They all have the same first name. John, 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 John. Somebody's playing games here. This is statistically impossible. Uh, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, uh, November 1, October... Uh, 30 days have September, April, June, November, and short February is done. All the rest have 31, October 31st. Halloween. Oh, um, don't you get it? Orson Welles. You mean the guy from the old wine commercials? Uh, Halloween, 1938, uh, uh, War of the Worlds, that fake radio news broadcast that got everybody scared thinking real live Martians were landing in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. But then it all just turned out to be a hoax. So? So. Maybe, I love uh, uh, that whole hoax. I mean, maybe it is. I get a laugh out of this, even to this day. Anyway, the red electroids, they sneak into the bonsai compound by jumping over the wall, kind of like the $6 million man. And then the Rasta does the same. The Buckaroo goes back to HQ and finds out there's a message for him. What about Yo-Yo Dine? What about Dr. Lazardo? Well, that's what we're trying to tell you. There's someone living inside him. Buckaroo. Thank Hey, y'all put these on. More in the box and there's one over there. What's this? It came with a record. It's like a 3D type thing. How am I supposed to know he's from outer space? This Rasta guy pedals up to the front gate and delivers it all in a pink cake box. Why? What for? 
We don't know. It wouldn't tell us. It wants to talk to the head honcho. Lights. Salutations, great buckaroo banzai. I am John M. Dunn from Planet 10. A common grave danger confronts both our worlds. After a bloody hey, reign of terror, the hated leader of our military caste, the self-proclaimed Lord John Wolfen, a bloodthirsty butcher as evil as your Hitler, oh, wow. was overthrown by freedom-loving forces, tried and condemned along with several hundred of his followers to spend eternity in the formless void of the eighth dimension. Did you tell Penny the buckle was looking was for? I looked in her room, she wasn't there. Who's Penny? Well, where is she? Well, everybody please shut up so I can hear the rest of this thing. Now you, buckle buns, I have unintentionally helped John Corfin with the success of your oscillation over Trusta. For our intelligence warns us that he intends to steal your overtruster. If he should attempt this, we will have no choice but to disrupt worldwide electronic communications and fire a portable beam weapon from your airspace to Smolensk in the union of the Soviet Socialist Republics. That's an action that the Kremlin will most certainly misinterpret as an American first strike. They're already a little trigger happy as it is. Stop! John Warfen before sunset. If you fail, we will be forced to help you destroy yourselves. I'll tell you, if it ain't one thing, it's another. Right now. End of discussion. Discussion? What discussion? Turns out the good guys are black electroids. Now, as a as an African American, I thought that was uh, I thought this movie was cool in that respect too, because uh, the there are a, a good number of uh, black actors in the uh, in the in the movie, and they don't all die in the first reel. That's uh, that's a big thing. Um, anyway, the red electroids break into the house in search of Akita and the oscillation overthruster. And then several chase scenes go on at once. And in the theatrical release, uh, there, there was something about the editing that just made that whole scene confusing. People going through halls and stuff like that because, um, you know, buckaroos chasing after the electroids and then the electroids are looking for the overthruster. And then the, eventually uh, Rawhide is killed by something spit at him from one of the red electroids. Penny Pretty's captured and she's taken away in Casper Lindley's helicopter. Then the president gets a call from Buckaroo Banzai and the Rasta, who's played by Carl Lumley, who uh, many of you will remember as Mantis. Hello, Mr. President. I know your back is killing you, but uh, I have a developing situation here, and I must speak frankly. Buckaroo, uh, Secretary of Defense McKinley and my National Security Advisor Smirnoff are visiting me, but uh, I have no secrets from them. Well, something has reared its ugly head in outer space, Mr. President, and it looks like the Earth has caught in a crossfire. But we have reason to believe that there are vicious red aliens walking freely among us, posing as the owners and operators of Yo-Yo-Dyne propulsion systems. Uh, Yo-Yo-Dyne propulsion, uh, the people working on our truncheon bomber? In the hands of foreign nationals, me, you Mr. say? Mr. President, 
Time is short. In order to prevent John Warfin's escape, my comrades are at this very moment taking up a geostationary position over New Jersey. This situation is explosive. Hell is that? Explosive? What are you saying, man? Some kind of race war in New Jersey? No, Mr. President, no. This this man, as you call him, is not a human being at all, but is in fact a black lectroid named John Parker from the very same Planet 10, and his spaceship is at this moment anchored above Yo-Yo Dine. Buckaroo, my good That's friend. It? These red creatures, they must somehow give off the bacteria. We breathe it, it swims up our nose into our cerebral cortex, where it literally talks to our brain cells, tells us to see exactly what they want us to see. Electric brainwashing. Diabolical, they got us so confused. Buckaroo, we'll I, uh, I don't know what to say. Electroids, planet 10, uh, nuclear, extortion. A girl named Jean. Buckaroo, Lexford Wing Commander. Excuse me, Mr. President, I have to go talk to the hornet's nest. Good God. Well, if it wasn't Buckaroo Banzai, I'd say commit the man. <laughs> Get me SAC headquarters to Omaha NORAD and the Strategic Space Command. I want some hard data on that cloud. John, get out in the field. Stick your beak into this one. At the Team Banzai Mobile Headquarters, Buckaroo Banzai receives a call from John Warfin, who wants the Overthruster so he can take his troop ship back to Planet 10 to attack it. Uh, yes, uh, this is uh, Emilio Lizard. Maybe you don't remember me. Ah, I'm flattered. Uh, we know the same people. Yeah, in fact, one of them is I'm sure in the miserable annals of the earth, you will be duly enshrined. However, uh, Miss Pretty claims to be unable to solve my problem and provide me with the crucial missing circuit for my overthruster. Maybe you can convince her to try. John Buckaroo, forget about me! They'll never break me! Penny, get off the phone. Dr. Mazzardo, really, what does she know about her thruster? She's not a scientist. Then, shall we say, a penny for your thoughts? <laughs> Maybe you can come in her place, huh? Yo-Yo die, Banzai. You know the address. Come along and bring your overthruster! He'll come. I know he's a guy. Take her to the pit! Go, big booty! Team Banzai is now equipped with breathing equipment containing the formula that allows everyone to see the electroids in their true form. Then the black electroids are now making good on their threat by sending an electromagnetic pulse. Buckaroo Banzai arrives at Yo-Yo Dine, where Lord John Warfin is giving his big Nuremberg speech to the troops. Blacks are on this planet, here in New Jersey, coming to destroy us. We must act, escape, or die. We must 
work faster uh, to finish the great vehicle itself so we can enter the eighth dimension and free our trapped comrades. So we can return home and seize power once again. What is the greatest joy? Orphan then goes on to torture Buckaroo to get the overthruster. The defense secretary arrives with Team Banzai at Yo-Yo Dine to rescue Buckaroo and Penny. The team sneaks in, armed to the teeth. And while all this is going on, then the defense secretary finds John Big Bootay and confronts him. What the hell is going on here, Big Boot? Where's my bomber? Big Bootay. John O'Connor. Put the stun on the track. Hey, I don't give a flying handshake what your name is. I'm here to see a bomber. This sure ain't it. Let's just go back upstairs to my office. Talk about this like two reasonable beings. Hey, you listen to me. Your private life, that's your own concern, but I'm here to see a bomber, and I'm damn sure gonna see it now. Look at this place. Don't you have any pride? It looks like a damn pigsty. It's not like planet. Understand, monkey boy? Get out of here, John O'Connor. But John Warfin said we could kill her. Damn John Warfin and the horse he rode in on! Now this is where everything starts to come to a head and things start to get crazy. There's a big confrontation. John Warfin retreats to his ship. John Parker and Buckaroo sneak into a shuttle pod on the troop ship. Warfin tries to take off and use the oscillation overthruster, which naturally doesn't work, so the ship goes barreling through a wall. It heads for the sky. In the sky, Buckaroo and John Parker separate from the troop ship and try to figure out how to operate the shuttle pod while it goes plummeting to Earth. John Parker, take this wheel. I'm just... Just hold on, that. It flies like a truck. Good. What is a truck? They destroy Warfin's ship, which goes up in a fiery blaze. John Parker flies up to the Black Electroid mothership. Buckaroo parachutes down to Earth. The world is saved. Then the end credits come up, and our heroes parade through one of those concrete rivers in Los Angeles like something out of a Saturday morning cartoon. At the end, the credits mention the next movie titled Buckaroo Banzai and the World Crime League. Unfortunately, this movie never really sees the light of day. It was supposed to actually feature Hanoi Shan, the criminal who murdered Buckaroo's parents. There were comic books published, Marvel Comics adapted the film into comic book form uh, for Marvel Super Special Issue number 33. And then Moonstone Books in 2006 uh, started publishing uh, comic books uh, that covered the earlier and further adventures of Buckaroo Banzai and the Hong Kong Cavaliers. I never really read the comic books. I'm sure they're good. You can check out uh, the Moonstone site at www.moonstonebooks.com. 
Hey, what do you say we check in with Vartok and get the answer to that quiz? Vartok? Hi everyone, this is Bartok again with the answer to the question posed earlier. To what was special about the music that Buckaroo Banzai and his friends were marching to in that dry L.A. aqueduct? Well, the answer is, according to several resources, the now famous entitled music track being composed by Michael Boddicker was not yet ready. So Boddicker told the movie's producers to blare out Billy Joel's Uptown Girl for the filming of the untitled since it had the same tempo. So the filming crew tied a boombox to the camera truck, and the rest is history. Well, that's it for this music and sci-fi segment. And now back to you, Darmok. And remember... No matter where you go... There you are. Thanks again, Vartok. You did real good. You did really, really good. I really appreciate it. If you want to learn more about Dr. Buckaroo Banzai and the Banzai Institute, head on over to www.banzai-institute.com. Well, it looks like it's time to go. It's been nearly an hour. I really enjoyed this time reliving the historical document uh, of the life of Dr. Buckaroo Banzai. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading the podcast. This is Phil Donaldson, Darmok on the forums, saying uh, catch you later. Thanks, Rico. Thanks again for uh, allowing me to, uh, to do this. And come on back next week for another installment of Trex in Sci-Fi.